Welcome to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. And today we are talking about swimming with whales and specifically ways that we can do that respectfully because that's obviously very important. So this is becoming an increasingly popular tourist activity around the world. And for that very reason, I think it's important that we create a dialogue around how we can do that in the most ethical and respectful way possible. So we'll be diving into this topic, pun intended, with today's guest, Karim. So Karim um, owns and operates a Dancing with Whales uh, business called, uh, Swimming with Whales business called Dance with Whales. So he'll explain a bit about that later. But Karim, thank you for coming on the show and welcome to the Conservation Tribe. Thank you for having me. No worries. So how about you tell the podcast a bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. I am an underwater photographer and filmmaker. I also uh, shoot a lot of photo and video on land from the air, um, wildlife, um, landscape, nature. I tend to focus on nature and my, my biggest passion and focus is on documenting whales, specifically humpback whales, though I do document other species. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I run whale swimming trips in the South Pacific um, every year, uh, mainly as a means of two things. One, for me to continue to document whales and also to share that with people in the hopes that that will connect them up with the ocean, change their perspective, and maybe create appreciation that will, that will um, inspire some sort of changes in people's life in order to better protect the ocean. Mm -hmm. So you think the experience part is a critical component to achieving that? Like, I, I believe the same way. Um, when someone has experience with an animal or just nature in general, climbing a mountain or being in the forest, you develop this emotional connection with that thing. And once you have that connection, uh, you're more likely re to respect it and want to protect it. So yeah, I'm very intrigued in this space because I think there's, um, yeah, the more connection that we have with the nature, the better off we'll be as a whole. Yeah, definitely, especially with the oceans, people, most people spend so little time interacting with the oceans other than laying out in the sun uh, by the sea or maybe dipping their face into the water to see a few fish. Um, most people's interaction with it is limited. So to take people basically to the pinnacle, which is to interact with whales, highly intelligent species that are often the size of buses, at least the humpback whales, that can definitely create a deep connection and open people's eyes up to the oceans as a whole and to pay more attention to our, our place in the world and, and how, we, how we treat the oceans. Because, you know, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind is how the oceans have been treated. Um, pollution, garbage um, is, is still being dumped in, in the water because it's just easy place to hide it. So that, that whole, mm. the whole idea of trying to get people connected up to the oceans, I, I feel like having them interact with a humpback whale might be the fastest way to do that. And for mm. those who, who can't do that because it's 
um, you know, it's logistically difficult, it's expensive, uh, it requires some swimming ability. On the other side, then at least I can try and document, photograph and film to show people who don't have the opportunity to actually get in the water with whales. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, so you're a, you're a photographer, you're a filmmaker in water and, and on land as well, but with a, the common theme being nature. What inspired you to kind of get involved specifically with nature-related um, photography? Was, was, have you always just been interested or was there like a moment where you're like, this is what I want to do? I have always loved animals and nature and wildlife. Um, I've lived in cities. I've lived, I've gone uh, during holidays into nature, um, but I've always loved animals. I, the physics of how they operate birds, the way that they fly and ride wind currents, uh, whales, how they, how they are underwater. Essentially, they look like they're flying. Um, Animals are so diverse and so highly specialized uh, that they, I think they're, they're incredible. The things that they're suited for, the environments and the adaptions that they've made. And doing photography, I have an interest in all different kinds of photography, but my favorite is wildlife. And so when I had the opportunity, even if it was photographing a snail or a lizard, which are a little easier to work with, um, that continue to develop um, and working underwater, photographing turtles and things, eventually that's um, accumulated towards going for larger and more um, threatened or delicate species and ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So it kind of stemmed from this fascination and curiosity for just like, how do they do that? This yeah, curiosity. curiosity. Mm. Yeah. Curiosity is huge. And yeah, we've, we've, there's a lot that we can genuinely learn from, from animals, from nature. If we choose to look at it, like even in architecture school, um, one of my projects was inspired by biomimicry. So have you heard of biomimicry? Yeah, definitely. I, I listened to a podcast that talks a little bit about it, how hummingbirds or kingfishers were used to, um, to redesign bullet trains and yeah so it's not even like a concept that we could take advantage of we've already taken advantage of there's yeah there's so much that we can learn and i find it you know these animals these ecosystems have been are the result of uh being engineered by nature for millions of years like this they don't just happen they've been kind of fine-tuned for all this time and to think that we can come up with a better product within just a couple of hundred hundred years just by thinking is a bit kind of arrogant. Like we should be looking at these um, examples because you know, they've been worked on far, for a long period of time. Yeah, so from even a selfish, yeah, yeah, even a selfish perspective of we can gain this from animals that's still something that we should consider because as a byproduct, we'll want to conserve them, even though maybe the, uh, um, the reasoning behind it isn't so, uh, I don't know, genuine or romantic. I, I often think about how 
the way that we have all of these species on Earth that have mastered flight, they've mastered underwater movement, they've mastered all different types of things from health to physics. And we essentially have the greatest library in the world. And right now we are burning into the ground. So when I think about species that we haven't yet unlocked their secrets, we haven't figured out how it works. And to lose those species before we're able to do that, just in general, to the way that we are, these species that, that have developed these abilities and that have become so specialized in their ecosystems between health and medicine and physics, flight, um, movement, to think that we are not taking care of our planet and we're losing these species, that some of them are going extinct, it's like burning the biggest library, the greatest library in the world. And that seems like such a shame to do, just for our own sake as humans, to, to lose species before we've been able to unlock their secrets and learn from them. It, it, to me, this is the, the most pressing thing on our planet. The biggest crisis is that we're losing ecosystems and species, and we're just burning information that we will never get back. That we would never get back. I mean, some would argue um, that in the future we, we may be able to bring back extinct species through you know uh, cloning and, and that kind of stuff, but that's not the point. Um, yeah, it's a really good way to look at it, viewing the world and everything within it as books in a library. And libraries are obviously important because you can gain wisdom, you can better yourself through education. I was just looking at a quote when you were speaking it. It reminded me of a quote that I'd written down by um, John Dingle. I think that's how you pronounce it. And the quote goes, Living wild species are like a library of books still unread. Our, heed, our heedless destruction of them is akin to burning the library without ever having read its books. Wow. Yeah. Which is... I think John Dingle said it better than I did. Then you guys have bang on the money with that one. And I like these analogies because it helps people process that information. They're like, okay, yeah, this kind of is like a library. And why would we burn a, a library down with all that useful information? Yeah, it is a sad yeah, you situation. Don't to, you don't have to care about any animals at all to realize that it's, it's valuable. It's, it genuinely is valuable. Yeah. That's what I was talking about with the selfish side. Like, even if you don't care, it's still important for your uh, future growth to have them here, or at least for your children's future growth and their children's, because without them, there's, there's less that we can learn. There's less that we can... Um, less resources for us as well. Like that's not my perspective, but there's obviously a real perspective and that's the uh, reality of it. Without them would be worse off. So bringing us back to Wales a little bit. So yeah, like I mentioned in the intro, swimming with whales is becoming increasingly popular. I'm, I'm sure that you've noticed that yourself, right? As each year you're getting more messages. So it brings the question of ethics. 
So we'll, we'll get into that juicy question first and then we can kind of break that down. So swimming with whales, is, is it ethical? Is it black and white or we still don't know? It's, uh, I would say it's not a black and white question of whether it's ethical or not, because if you give whales the benefit of the doubt as being intelligent species, then you could ask the question of, is talking to people on the subway ethical or not? There may be people who have no interest in talking to you. And if you continue to try and pursue a conversation, move away. that might be unethical. But if somebody is, in, is interested in talking with you, then um, there that shouldn't be a problem. And mm -hmm. in the same way, there whales are specifically humpback whales, um, as I've had the most experience with them, are very intelligent. And there's whales that, that want to interact with you, and there's whales that don't. And um, so how you how you go about that? Um, there are people who say that. You know, we should just leave nature alone. But we do live in a world where humans and animals and nature interact regularly. Mm -hmm. And there are, I think, ethical ways to do that. And the biggest aspect is respecting their space and respecting what they want to do. And as intelligent creatures, you can get a sense of that and you can read it. Um, just to go into some examples, with humpbacks, so typically um, one of the easiest groups to swim with is a mother and, and her calf, her baby. And there are there are mothers that are um, very easygoing, and their calves are very shy. There are mothers that are not so comfortable, but their calves are very playful and curious. And um, you know, there's times where the baby will come up over to us and then the mother will come and take it away and um, there are also uh, i've seen where a, ca a calf was quite shy and it would so basically the mother will be resting a little bit down below whether that's five meters ten meters um, and the calf will come up to the surface to breathe every four to five minutes on average, while the mother will be down there for about 20 minutes. And it varies, of course, depending on whales and depending on situations. But I've seen it where a calf would regularly go the opposite way. And at one point, the mother came up early, pushed the with her, with, with her, what do you call it, your nose, but the front of her face, pushed the calf, rotated it around and brought it back towards us to interact with us. These humpbacks in the South Pacific are quite used to um, people. And so, you know, they have experienced people in the water, whereas the, for the calves, it's, it's something new for them. So there's mothers who are more comfortable with humans, there's mothers who are less comfortable. But the ethics of it, whether it's ethical, I think there's, there's a few parts. There's the large scale, which is government regulations, um, limiting the amount of time that boats can spend, limiting the amount of boats in the water, um, limiting the amount of people in the water, and limiting how people interact and approach whales. And then on the smaller scale, as an as a individual or as a group, how, how you interact with the whale, whether you go directly up to it without regard for its face 
or whether you go within visibility and stop and wait to see whether it approaches you or how it feels about you coming closer before approaching. So just as, as we do with people, there's, you know, there's a bubble of space that you don't want to encroach on. And we, it's true that we can't tell what animals are thinking or feeling, but many humans have dogs and many humans have a good sense of how their dog um, feels about something. And in the same way, we're not blind to noticing their behavior, whales' behavior, and whether they're interested or not, whether they let the boat come closer, whether they let us come closer before leaving, turning away. Um, so I think it's, I think it's a, a delicate thing, um, but I think there are definitely ethical ways to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't think it's, you know, that black and white, it's more complex and therefore we should be talking about it, which is what we're, we're doing now. But I, I don't think you can just say, you know, you just can't interact with another animal at all. Like with just humans, we, in, we interact and it, it's, it's the issue is with, um, interacting with something if they're not wanting to interact with you back, like forcing that. And as a result, they're then becoming uncomfortable and their quality of life decreasing. Um, so I, I imagine it's about reading the cues. Like that's a big part of um, the experience uh, as you're hosting those tours is reading the cues of the the whales and being like, okay, this whale is doing this. Therefore, maybe it's not into it. Therefore, we should maybe move somewhere else. Would that be kind of accurate, reading the cues and then reacting to those? Definitely. It's it's important to read the cues. I, I mean, there's people who, who push it a bit much. Uh, I personally try to be very conservative. And, um, you know, if the whales are not interested, then the whales are not interested. And you can pick up on those cues before you even get in the water based off of how they're reacting with the boat. Um, and there's times when, you know, we'll, we'll try approach a couple of times. And if the whales aren't into it, then we just leave and go find other whales. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing in the water. If, if the whales are not into it, then, um, then it's not, it's not something, it's not something that we, I want to push. And, and if, if somebody or an animal doesn't want to interact, then that's, that's up to them. Um, because there are there are whales that do want to interact, and the, the quality of interaction, both for us and for them, is much better if it's consensual and on their terms than if you're trying to just see something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and part of that is also you know their day trips in the South Pacific, at least in Tonga. Um, I personally, we run uh, five to seven days. And so there isn't this rush of we have to see the whale no matter what because we only have a day. You know, if the whales aren't interested in us that day, there's always tomorrow. And there's plenty of them out there. Mm-hmm. And even as a photographer, there are times when I know that, you know, if I get a little closer, I could make an amazing photo. But I don't. I'm not willing to sacrifice the respect for the, the animals and disturb them in order to make a picture. Um, 
there will be other opportunities to do that. So yeah, how you, how you pick up on cues and how you then go about that is an important thing, whether you're dealing with people or with animals or whales. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to add to that, um, to kind of break down the processes and practices that you personally try and implement to make it respectful. So you touched on, um, you know, you have a longer trip and there's no kind of time pressure to have that experience on a day. Like if it, if it's not the right day, then you don't force it. So that's one way of making it more respectful. Um, so can you kind of, um, quickly outline briefly, some things, some practices that you're conscious of um, implementing to make it as respectful for both parties. Yeah, so basically um, when I go on the water, it's with five people um, total. I have a a Tongan colleague who's a whale swimming guide. Uh, I'll just use the trips in Tonga as an example. And so the two of us are, are assessing the situation and um, managing the people around us. Now, what I'll typically like to do is tell people, first of all, we, we, ideal scenario is to get in the water quietly and slowly because whales are very sensitive um, to sound and movement and many other factors that we may not be aware of. And I will typically tell people um, to stay at my sides so that they get a, a good view, but so that we're all in a little ball together, a little cluster. Um, we don't want to be going around surrounding the, the whale from different sides. We want to be in a little ball. Um, and then we'll make a slow approach to the edge of visibility and then stop and look and see and see how the whales um, interact, see whether they, you know, oftentimes, Cats are, they're new to the world. Like many um, young creatures, they're curious, they're clumsy, they're playful. And cats will, at least older cats will often come up to us and start swimming around us going within a meter or two meters away and rolling and playing and turning. And then they'll go back down to their mother. and uh, they they play like puppies. They're a bit they're a bit clumsy. They <laughs> they come up to you. They turn. Sometimes they'll even uh, mimic what you're doing um, if you if you're doing spinning around. And so from situation to situation, we'll start off in a little tight ball on the edge of visibility before considering moving forward. And if I or my colleague decide that it's good to move forward, then we'll move a little bit forward and see what the mother is doing. How does she, you know, what is she, what is with she doing with her eye? Ideally, if she's resting, to stay on the side um, of her, where her eye is open, where she's awake, or stay on the, not on, so, so that she, or sometimes to stay on the same side as the calf and her eye so that she doesn't have to watch two things. Um, and that situation changes each time and that's something that that we'll look at and see you know, is she moved does she put her fins up is she turning the other way um so that's that would be a mother calf scenario now sometimes there's juvenile whales which are you know they're less um it's less of a delicate process because it's not a newborn or a young calf 
Um, and so they might come right up to you and, and turn and go around and play with you. Um, and that, that, so that each situation changes. And in, in that regard, there are times that with a, with a juvenile or an older whale, that if it's interactive, we might spread out um, and dive down a little bit and interact with it. So that, that's a typical uh, means of doing it, is to just watch for signals, move slowly, move quietly, keep fins underwater, and um, be as gentle as possible. Okay, nice. So um, in terms of cues, because obviously not all um, operators probably uh, follow those steps. So what are those cues that you and your Tongan um, brother look out for that maybe other people could also look out for if they're doing a, a similar experience? Yeah, so... Um... I mean, I guess the biggest cue is if the whale turns and goes away. That's the the most obvious one. Mm -hmm. um, so that is actually what it means, right? If they turn away, it's it's not that they just wanted to change direction. It's it's like I'd rather not do this interaction today. It depends. Um, there's times where whales are on the move, and so you know we'll get in the water and they'll pass by us and then they'll continue going because they're on the move. Um, there are times where, you know, if there's, um, if a calf is off playing and goes a little bit farther away, then the mother will go off after it. Mm -hmm. um, and there are times when they're just ready to move on to a different place. But typically if you approach and you get on the water and you get up to the whales and they turn and go away, that's the biggest indicator of them not being interested. There are some other cues. Um, I've seen sometimes if people get too close, um, the if it's a mother, she'll put her fin up at you um, just to create that point barrier of space. Point yeah, put her fin point at you. So whales will do that sometimes. They'll put their fin up um, to create that space, and that's a good indication to back up. Um, and uh, different whales have preferences about where they like you. Some whales will, will prefer you on one side. And um, this is why it's it's better to be not all places that allow you to swim with whales have the same regulations, but it's um, definitely you know, one should be with, with an experienced whale swimming guide so as to pick up on those cues. Um so some whales will like you on a particular side, ideally not spending time around the tail, um, partly because the tail is very powerful and strong um, and can be dangerous, but also you, know, you wouldn't want something behind you generally, you want it in front of you. Um, and you know, a, another cue uh, with a mother and calf, a mother might keep the calf on the opposite side of her, which would could be an indication that she's not that comfortable with um, her calf being near you or you being near her calf. And some of that is that her calf, if it's very young, newborn, as with human mothers, many human mothers are very nervous with their babies, um, or she may just not like the way that people are swimming around. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that changes from from whale to whale and their personalities um so you know it's hard to say anything is set in stone it's like this is a direct indication other than typically the whale leaving is a pretty strong indication because they are so dynamic in moods and in personalities from one whale to another and from um, different times of the day or different times that you're spending with them um so generally speaking if you have never swam with whales before it's very hard to pick up on cues because you're so you're you know it's it's mind-blowing you've got this whale in front of you it's beautiful its eye is looking at you and so most people are have absolutely no idea and they're not they're not paying attention they're not going to be able to pick up on cues now if you've spent more time in the water with them you'll notice things um and about their behavior which is why i um i ask people to stay on my sides and just slightly behind me so that they can always see me so that i can uh, move them in a different direction and um so that me and my tongue and colleague can can pick up on what's going on and make make the best decision that we can about how to respect the whale space mm -hmm. yeah i think that's important um it seems like there needs to be kind of overarching regulations in place that mm -hmm. kind of people need to subscribe to yeah mm -hmm. and there are in in most places um reasonable regulations of course that can be worked on as always mm -hmm. but i guess you know i would say as a as a as a consumer of this or as someone who wants to do this um it would be good to look out for operators that respect the regulations um and that also respect the whales and that keep numbers small and interactions um respectful And that's probably the best thing that you can do as a as a person who wants to swim with whales is to to make sure that people are doing it the right way. Mm -hmm. And I think that people want to do it the right way. So once we once the public becomes more educated on what that correct or ethical or respectful way what that looks like, they would want to have that kind of experience. So it'd be better off for the businesses to do it that way because I feel like they'll attract more customers. Like a, a tourist, a, a tour operator that's, you know, obviously breaking the rules. Obviously, there's people that would be attracted to that, but for the most part, people don't want that because they want to do it the right way. Yep. Mm. Yeah, and with something as something as sensitive as as whales, that people can often pick up on it if the whale is. You know, if the whale leaves and doesn't want to and is avoiding the boat, people will pick up on that. Um, and and so that's um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I think most people do want to want to have a respectful interaction mm -hmm. in a way that feels feels good and feels that the whale wants to interact with you and not just forcing yourself on it. Mm. Yeah, I, I I definitely believe in that and. I think it comes down to more of an education thing for the, the tourists. Um, you know, many people like myself just aren't aware of 
how it should be done anyway. So they, they don't mm. know what to look out for. But once they have that information, I can guarantee the vast majority would rather pick one that's doing the right thing. So from a business perspective, I think you'd be better off by just bloody trying to do the right thing for um, everyone involved. Um, I think so too. Mm. So I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, ecotourism and the potential positive impact that it could have for conservation for two main reasons. So the first reason is, um, like we touched on before, you develop this emotional connection once you have a tangible experience with the natural world. And, you know, the quote goes, you know, you protect what you love. I'm not sure, sure many people have said that, but you grow that love through through real world experiences like you don't love something just because it happens for a reason so i think um ecotourism can help foster that relationship so this and the second part is probably more the most important part in my eyes but the least romantic part is it um gives the natural world species ecosystems an economic value it gives them a monetary yeah. value. And that's very important for the shot callers of the world, the governments, the politicians, prime ministers, presidents. Um, there's no incentive for them to want to protect these things or put in regulations to protect these things if they can't uh, visualize a return on investment, if they can't um, visualize them making a profit from it. So as um, unattractive as it sounds, I think it's very important that... Um, I think egotourism is important because of that reason. You can be like um, elephants in, you know, Botswana. We should keep them because they generate X amount of dollars per year. Like it's quantifiable. Whereas if there was, you know, and, and that's very important. Um, so how would you make the link between ecotourism and conservation? I'm fully comfortable with the idea of, you know, if, if it, I'm happy with the idea of governments and companies and society protecting and preserving places, species and ecosystems because it is economically valuable. For me, the most important thing is that these, these ecosystems and animals are around and that they're living well. Um, I, of course, as you said, it's, it's not as romantic, um, that it's for economic gain, but I would rather see, see that. And, and that doesn't inhibit doing things because it's the right thing to do or because you love nature. It just, it is an incentive for people who don't care about that stuff. And if we can have a better world because it's financially lucrative to have, it be that way that is better than what the track that we have been on for a long time which is financially more lucrative to ruin the world mm -hmm. so um i mean when it comes to things like ecotourism you know whales used to be hunted um for for their their oil um still in some places for their meat so if that can be shifted over to whales not being hunted, 
but instead those same people who were there or you know the ancestors of the people who were hunting whales to then be taking people to swim with whales i think that that's a, a much better scenario mm-hmm. um you know, it's it's nothing is nothing is perfect than an ideal scenario for the whales um, and for most wildlife. You know, minimal human interaction would probably be best. Um, though we don't live in a world where um, where there's no interaction. I mean, we have boats and shipping lanes, and there's all sorts of um, noise and pollution in the ocean. That being said. Some species, I feel like, don't really care so much for interaction. However, mammals, um, as advanced as whales, particularly, they're so large that even their babies are bigger than humans, that when you are in the water with a whale, you're not really a threat to the whale. Um, Of course, it's important to respect and not to harass their space or them, but... um, you know, there are animals that are interested in interaction and it's, for me, it's, it's very, I, I, I love that whales are interested for the most part. Many of them are interested because they are one of the most beautiful animals, I think, um, particularly underwater. And, and so I don't remember the question, but I think you answered it. So you think they're the, one of the most beautiful animals. So what's your reasoning behind that? Uh, I mean, that's hard to say. Um, they have very long fins. They're very graceful in the water, the way that they move. They can turn on a dime very quickly. Oh, um, nice. The different whale populations have different colorations and markings, but they just have these crazy ridges and they've got barnacles attached to their fins and you see sometimes as the fin comes by you you see the barnacle um which is in itself another interesting creature um with its i don't know much about barnacles but let's say the tendrils or the tentacles whatever it is that is coming out of the barnacles um and they've got these big eyes the whales they look at you um, they're just very majestic and beautiful in the water the babies are are cute there's no denying that um i mean as humans i think some animals don't look as attractive to us maybe earthworms and insects while others do like lions and tigers and whales and um particularly humpback whales i think i can't explain psychologically why they are attractive to us but they are objectively i would say quite beautiful in the eyes of humans yeah, I've never seen, I've never swum with whales, but I've seen you know, a few of your photos and, and I've seen videos and yeah, you kind of just watch them and, and you're just like amazed. The, the, the graceful nature of them, how they're this giant creature but just gracefully just swimming through the, the water. They're very spatially aware. Um which can't be said about all people. I personally am quite clumsy. I knock things over, but they're very, very aware. Other than the babies that are a bit clumsier, the adults are very aware of their space. They know how to keep a good distance. Um, they, they just don't bump into you. Fins might go over you or under you. And um, they seem to, to be 
they're they're like your friend who can leave a cup of water or coffee on the edge of a table and they'll never knock it down they're just fully aware of their space Um, and i guess many animals are but it seems to be very much so at least with humpback whales they're they're very good about knowing exactly where you are and where their fins are and um in order to keep a a good amount of space and sometimes if the babies are coming too close and the mother's not comfortable with it she'll come up and she'll move the baby away and she'll somehow um, communicate that with the baby so that the next time you go in the baby won't come as close so they've got um, good fin eye coordination i don't know if it's their (laughs) if it's their eyes i i i really i'm not sure there's there are ways that they're aware of you in the water that are seemingly you wouldn't think the whale would know where you are or how far you are, and yet they're they're very precise. Yeah, that's very intriguing. That's not really something that you would associate with whales, but I imagine because they're so big, that's something that they very much have to learn quickly. Because, but yeah, it's yeah. Whales and being coordinated, yeah. very strange. Very, very coordinated. I can't speak as far as things like uh, southern right whales or many other whale species. I just, at least with humpback whales, they're very coordinated. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite experience? Have you got a, a favorite moment that's just stuck out? That's a difficult question because there's a lot of them that come to mind one of my favorite experiences i'm just going to run through a few of them one of my favorite experiences was um so i these whales were moving quite quickly Mm -hmm. and um our captain turned off the engine told us to get in the water so i jumped off the back of the boat and dove under the bubbles and i saw two whales with a dolphin in front of each of their faces and the dolphins were riding the whale's face like they do ride the bow of a boat and one of the whales then did a half barrel roll and turned upside down and was swimming after the dolphin and i managed to get a couple photos of it and it's something that lasted only a few seconds but it really was to be going from above the water through the bubbles, seeing whales with dolphins riding on the bow of their face, and one of them turning, doing half a barrel roll, and interacting with each other uh, was really mind-blowing. And it doesn't happen too often to see dolphins with whales, but it is really beautiful to see because dolphins are much more interesting to the whales than we are because they're faster, um, they can play, they can swim in front and around, and it, it really, when you see dolphins interacting with whales, it really makes you realize how clumsy and slow we are in the water, <laughs> which is maybe why we typically only retain great interest with the baby whales. The adult whales are not quite as interested in us, whereas when there's dolphins around, they'll often play with them. Sometimes the dolphins will harass them, um, which is pretty funny to see as well. That was one of my favorite experiences. 
Okay. Um, another one was uh, having a baby whale swim under me and uh, put its ar- its fins almost around me. So I was in the basically in the belly of the whale and I wasn't looking through the camera. I was just taking photos and looking at this baby whale's eye. And this thing is the size of a vehicle and it just stayed under me for a little while before slowly passing. And um, wow. another... Yeah, another one that comes to mind uh, was with a, a baby humpback that was very playful, and the mother was very, very comfortable and calm, resting down below. And um, this whale was turning around and spinning. And um, at one point, I went upside down, and I was just staying there, hovering upside down. And the whale, baby whale, turned and went upside down as well. And we were looking at each other upside down and we just stayed like that for maybe 20 seconds, 30 seconds. I don't even know. And so my view, all that was in my world was this baby whale, which from my perspective, we were both right side up, but the whole world was flipped upside down the surface of the water. And we just kept looking at each other until finally I needed to take a breath of air and spun back around. And Baby whales will sometimes, you know, it's you. You are something new and interesting in the water, and they will sometimes mimic you. And <laughs> if you start spinning around, they'll spin around. They uh, very much like like puppies. If you are very calm and slow with a puppy, it's going to be generally very sweet and and be easy with you. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you rile it up and get it really excited, then the puppy might spinning and running and playing and you can do the same thing with baby humpbacks you can get them excited and riled up and they'll be turning and moving and diving down and coming very very close to you and and then you know someone nearby you might be very calm with them and they'll just very slowly go up to them and you know make a slow nice pass and then they'll come back to you and be spinning and rolling and playful so they even as even as calves they are very aware and very intelligent it's just crazy just even thinking about that seems like you got a pretty uh, enjoyable lifestyle yeah (laughs) so dance with whales um how often do you run those tours if anyone's kind of interested in, in doing something like this is there like a particular time of the year that you go yeah, so the whales that I work with are, they are South Pacific humpback whales. So they are in Antarctica during their summer, mm-hmm. in the Southern Hemisphere summer. And for winter, they come up to the South Pacific to, to breed, um, to have their calves and to breed into, in the warmer, sheltered, protected waters um, that typically don't have predators. There also isn't very much to eat, essentially nothing to eat, so it's only the calves they're eating. But that takes place during the months of July, August, September, October. So it's winter in the South Pacific. And, um, you know, that's when the whales are there, so that's when I I run trips. And um, so uh, my girlfriend helps me with the logistics and production of running the trips, and we're typically there... um, We've been tending to do August, September, October, um, 
but that whole from July through October is is a good time of year. It's really the only time of year with the South Pacific comebacks. Um, so that's that's the time frame. Mm-hmm. August, July, August, September, October. So coming up. Coming up, yes. Very excited. Very soon. I also noticed on your website you do orca swims. We have not done that yet. Um, uh, are you planning on doing it next year? Planning on doing it. Um, that is something. Yeah, we, we, that is something else. That's my favorite animal. Yeah. Orca. Yeah, I think um, orca swims will be a little bit more intense. Um, a little bit colder and um, the humpbacks are is, is tropical warm waters whereas orcas is arctic waters and that is something we, we're just we want to work out the details and make sure we're doing it the right way before before we um, do that so it's a it's a pending trip pending pending okay and if anyone wants to see all the details on your website dancewithwales.com yeah. So, so quickly on the name, what's the meaning behind the name? I is it, what's the meaning behind the name Dance with Wales? Well, when you, I, I love to free dive and um, some of the people who come on the trip as well, they're free divers. And um, if you're not familiar with free diving, basically you hold your breath, you dive down. Ideally, you are um, comfortably weighted so that you, at a certain depth, you are neither buoyant nor do you sink, um, at which point you're preserving your oxygen. So you're essentially able to dive down and spend longer underwater, but also move in whichever direction you want. When you're free diving, gravity is not that important. You can go in any direction and you do have this three-dimensional space um, that feels like you're flying. And um, the way that whales move is, is very graceful and it often looks like they're dancing. And I've had times where I, I leave the camera on the boat, um, which is a hard thing to do because I know that that's probably going to be an amazing interaction. And so part of me wants to document it, but the other part of me also wants the mobility and to be fully present in the moment. And so there's times where it can feel like you are dancing with whales or with a whale and when they're interactive and you swim towards them and you spin around and you might do uh, a flip and all of this is on a a single breath of air Um, and especially when the when the babies mimic what you're doing or you're mimicking what they're doing it can feel like a dance (laughs) that is amazing so um camera equipment for the techies out there what camera do you use or camera is what's that kind of setup look like and maybe, use, and maybe um, what and maybe what did you start off with at the very beginning for like someone that is maybe interested in getting into this mm-hmm. underwater f- um, photography space my very first camera i started off with was a little tiny point and shoot which was nice because it was easy i didn't know how it functioned and i basically just pressed the button and took photos Mm -hmm. um, and tried to make things look how i wanted them to and then i slowly when i was comfortable with that upgraded to an slr which you can swap lenses um the first camera that i started using underwater was a canon 5d mark 3 which is um, a slr so 
lens, you know, you can adjust things like your shutter speed and your aperture, uh, how much light comes in, how blurry the background is, how fast the photo is, and um, with a housing, a case around it from a company called Icolite. And um, that was, yeah, that was, that was what I initially started with. Underwater photography is quite difficult because your biggest, your first problem is that you have to get where you want to be, right? And where you want to be is not necessarily always at the surface. Um, so you have to physically get yourself to the spot you want to photograph, as well as lighting functions completely different underwater. You lose colors as you goes down, go down. Your white balance, so how the camera sees blues or oranges changes as you go down. Whether the water is clear, whether it's deep water or shallow water with a sandy bottom or a coral bottom will change how lighting is, whether it's sunny or cloudy, whether the water is flat or whether the water is choppy will change it. So you've got all these factors. And then on top of that, your buttons are usually reversed, uh, <laughs> at least on the lower end housings, because to add more gears, it would make it more complex. But yeah, basically your buttons are all backwards and you've got this big thing that you have to drag through the water. So it's very difficult, but it's very rewarding. Mm. But as with anything, as you learn and become you comfortable with operating it, you get better. As you learn lighting underwater, you get better at it. Um, so nowadays I use a Canon 1DX Mark II in a, a Nauta Cam housing. So it's quite a hefty thing. It's about the size of, uh, I don't know how we would say, um, it's about the size of a backpack, like a full backpack, not a hiking backpack, but like a, a camera bag or, you know, your standard full backpack. Um, and then I, I typically will also um, have a GoPro or a similar type of action camera on it so that I can get video. And in that way, I can also swap back and forth between photo and video and um, allows me to shoot what I want. So GoPro is decent? GoPro, GoPro is decent. Um, it depends on the situation. You don't have lots of control, but yeah. um, you know, Go, GoPro is a great starting point if you want to shoot underwater and you don't have, you know, the means of investing, you know, three to $20,000 in underwater camera gear. A GoPro can do a nice job, at least in video. And uh, DJI has an action camera that is similar called the Osmo Action. So, yeah, you know, a small action camera that is waterproof is a good means of, at least in the realm of video and yeah. having a go at seeing what it's like. And you said the um, the housing, underwater housing that you use is the Nordicam? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much does one of those set you back? Um, it depends on which the camera, camera and, it, and it depends on, you know, you can get, uh, like I have a little eyepiece that, tilts at 45 degrees and expands the view so that looking with, you know, with, with your mask underwater, you've got separation. Yeah. And if you also have separation between the camera, then you lose a lot of the edges. So um, the Nauta cams will range, I think on the smaller end between three to 10,000 us dollars. Um, although they're, they probably go more if you're getting, 
you're doing you know, with a, a red camera or a RE Alexa camera. So, um, so not for your amateur photographer. No, the housings range between a thousand and let's say twenty thousand. Um, so it's yeah, it's quite a it's quite an investment because you're you're not only having to get the camera, but you're also having to get the housing. Mm. Um, so yeah hmm. interesting I, i'm i'm a bit of a techie like I've, i'm always looking out for like I, I don't have a good camera myself but when i get enough money i want to invest in a good camera but i'm always intrigued in like the, you know, the best cameras for this and the settings and yeah the equipment and that kind of stuff hmm, interesting i think my next there's no perfect camera for everything so it's you know <laughs> That's kind of the thing is you have to Rule pick and choose which, yeah. what, what is your, are your requirements and what you need and balance that with the budget. Because mm -hmm. even the most expensive camera you can get is not going to do everything you want it to. Mm. Mm. Good advice. So, yeah, if you want to get into the space, you're probably going to need to get a, a few cameras under your belt. So yeah, or just start, start with, with one, one simple one, and don't worry so much about the gear, but do what you can. And then yeah. when you're fully limited, then you can look into what else can, what you can get that can advance that. Okay, so we're nearing the endish an hour and ten minutes in. Is there any other to finish off on? I want to kind of get you to ask a question of the day to the audience, but. Are there any other topics you kind of want to touch over in a, that we haven't covered or go into in a bit more detail? I think I think we're good on on uh, the details. Um, can't think of anything right now. Um, as far as a question goes, I don't know exactly what kind of question <laughs> you're looking for, but something that I I sometimes think about is how humans have interacted with animals over time. And I, I try and imagine what the place would be like if animals were in the abundance that they would be without humans hunting or uh, displacing them. Um, you know, what would the oceans be like at max capacity of, of whales? What would the landscape be like with all the insects and the, the birds? Um, and I also wonder... Um, I guess when I think about humpbacks and I think about whales is I wonder were the ones that were the most curious or couldn't hold their breath the longest or the least shy were those the ones that were hunted and all we were left with were the ones that were not very interactive the ones that could hold their breath for a very long time and the ones that oh, were not interested in being near humans that's a depressing thought <laughs> I didn't mean to. No, yeah, no, I it's, to. no. I, I, it's, I love thinking about stuff like that, but yeah, that is like a sad thing. Like the curious ones were, were they the ones that were all slaughtered during? How much of that is hereditary, or how much of that is learned behavior? Maybe they're much more interactive now because you know they're. They go generation with generation, swimming with humans, but maybe not. Okay, so 
Do you want a more positive question? No, 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 no. So I'm just trying to. Um, <laughs> so the question is, what would the, what do we think the world would look like if we kind of didn't um, have our hand in killing off this all the different species? What that world would look like without us? If we didn't, if we weren't here to interfere, yeah. And what could it look like if we if we work to do a better job of okay. you know if we let things rebound? I, I sometimes wonder what if the world what it could look like just stopped eating fish for one year. Right? What would that do for for fish populations? Um, you know, what if yeah? What if we just stopped just for for a small period of time, let our resources replenish? So it's kind of a, it's looking back in the past, what would the world have looked like yeah. if we didn't have our hand in destroying it mm -hmm. so much? And also what could it look like if we just ease up a little bit? I think that's a great question. That is a great question. Now I like the end part to it because it kind of leaves us with a bit of hope, a little a goal to work towards. All right. On that note, we'll, we'll end it there, my friend. So yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. I personally, thank you for having me. It's great talking to you. Yeah. I personally really enjoyed that conversation. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, swim with whales myself one day, I think. Tonga. Definitely. Tonga. Tonga. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, I'll chat to you another time. Um, the audio, I'll set up a Dropbox folder and um, I'll send you, uh, if you message me your email, I can send you the link or I'll send you the link on Instagram. And okay. you, if you upload your audio and I can, once I've done Very all my loud. stuff, I can upload the audio let and video me... and Whatever. Let me give you my email because that will be uh, easiest. Yes. It's um, just K-A-R-I-M. Give a pen. One sec. Or yep. keyboard or whatever. Yep. K-A-R-I-M-I-L-I-Y-A. I. There. Actually, this will be easier. K-A-R-I-M at yep. kareemphotography.com. K A R I M at Karim Karim Photography.com. Mm -hmm. right, I'll send you the link there. And um, if we ever team up in the future, we've got the, a shared Dropbox folder that we can, I don't know, it's probably handy to have for future stuff. Great. If that happens. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, great talking to you. Um, thank yeah, you for likewise. thinking of me. Um, and yeah, definitely. Hope you can make it out to Tonga sometime. Um, I will send you a discount code. It's very expensive, which I guess is the, the byproduct of limiting the number of permits and limiting the number of um, uh, people doing it is that the price goes up and up and up and the boat operators put the price up and the houses go up. And I worry that one day I will just have very rich old people on the trips. Um, <laughs> for now, um, it still remains possible for, for, for young people to do it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, hope, 
Do you want to mention the, the price or they can just hop on your website and learn all that information? It, um, it changed. Yeah, it changes. I mean, it just, it just, just depends. Like this year went up because the, the boat and the house went up. I'm hoping that next year the boat and the house will not go up. Mm-hmm. In which point that I can keep the price the same. So okay. it kind of fluctuates. Yeah. Okay. Well, they can hop on your website and, and check out those details. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I think this is a really um, relevant thing to talk about um, at the moment, just because it's gaining in popularity. And, you know, we, we want to be supporting the people that are attempting to do the right thing. So, yeah, yeah. thoroughly enjoy that conversation. And I've been following you for quite a while now. So, it was, it was nice to, um, yeah, actually be able to connect and team up for this. So thank you. Well, yeah, good luck with the, with the, the podcast. And um, I, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing it. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I'll leave you to it. Okay. All right. Till we thanks. meet again. All right. Cheers, mate. Bye. All right.